Hello, it's Kate Mercer coming back to you on the Go Well podcast. Welcome. Today I've got an amazing interview with Yumiko Kidota. All ever Yumiko wanted to do was to become a surgeon. Young, gifted and dedicated, Yumiko graduated her medical degree with honours and was well on her way to becoming an outstanding plastic and reconstructive surgeon. She spent 14 years studying, working 70 plus hour weeks on call for days at a time, working at numerous hospitals across two states in Australia, doing whatever was asked of her because that's what was needed to become a doctor. Her work-life balance was non-existent. Her personal life was one of bargaining with friends and loved ones and a constant cycle of cancelling plans and making up for them. In 2018, she quit. 14 years of working towards her dream had taken its toll. The mental, physical and emotional strain had brought her to a tipping point. Yumiko had spent years in a world where she needed to stay calm and professional in the face of racism, sexual harassment, sexism, chauvinism, discrimination, favouritism and ageism. A world enshrouded by professional code of silence. This is a fantastic interview uh, and a result of uh, reading her book, Emotional Female. Look, I'm just so taken with your book that's only just come out uh, called Emotional Female. And uh, given that today is International Women's Day and uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in Parliament at the moment around, uh, well, we all know what, um, I just thought I'd throw that first question to you about why... Uh, almost a silly question, why you called it emotional female, but what would you like to say about that? Yeah, emotional female is actually something I got called at work. That's how the title came about. Yes. I had had a minor disagreement with a male colleague and he he didn't like that. And so he decided to call me emotional. And, you know, obviously that made me even more emotional mm. um, because it's something that women get called exclusively. I, I know that if a male colleague of mine had had the same conversation with this other doctor, he definitely would not have been called emotional. I just feel like it's something that women get labelled as and it's used as an insult. So it was a starting point for me to think about all the different ways in which women are treated differently in the medical profession compared to our, our male counterparts. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think a lot of women will relate to that title. I know I certainly can. I'm surprised. (laughs) Did that only happen to you once in the whole time? I'm I'm amazed. Yeah, well, thankfully, yes, it was the the one time I got called emotional. (laughs) Wow, amazing. So let's just go straight to the book. And um, can you tell our listeners about it? Because obviously there's not, um, they wouldn't have read it, most of them. So what would you like to say about the book? So my, my book, Emotional Female, is about my, my time as a medical student and as a junior doctor. So I went to uni for six years and I was working as a plastic surgery registrar. I was very interested in hand surgery at the time. But after about seven and a half years of working, I eventually left. It all got a bit too much. It was, it was a lot of overworking, um, a system that didn't look after the junior doctors we were very vulnerable to exploitation because the, the process to, to progress in medicine is just so competitive and junior doctors are poorly treated in the hospitals. So that's, that's a big reason why I wanted to write 
write the book to to really shine a light on what's happening. It's really ironic that junior doctors aren't treated well when we we're part of a caring profession. We that's what we do for a living, look after people who are sick and vulnerable and yet the way we treat each other is just appalling. So that's the crux of what emotional female is about. Mm, it's well, it's an amazingly brave book and it's and it's very detailed actually. I think you mentioned to me that you um, as you were studying, you were actually journaling all the time. So when you wrote the book, you brought all that together. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It made my process a lot easier. So I didn't have to rely as much on my memory. But when I was an intern, I kept a daily diary with me. My, my sister had actually given me a 365-day diary for Christmas just before starting my internship year. So I wrote in that a lot. And I because... My family, uh, I didn't live with my family. I kept in touch with my sisters a lot by email. So whenever something happened at work, I would write to them about it. Um, I did a little bit of, you know, traveling with going to conferences and things. And and I kept in touch with friends and family by emails. So my email inbox and my diary definitely provided a lot of um, stories that I, you know, I otherwise may have forgotten because it, it does span a very long time. It was you know, six years of studying and eight years of work. So it's a lot of stuff to have to remember if you haven't written it down. Well, can we just drill down to that a bit and actually just explain to people about exactly how many hours you were doing? I think you were saying 70 hours a week and just so little sleep. Can you just explain that in a bit more detail? Yeah, so the contact hours at the hospital could be around 70 hours a week. But for me, the thing that really affected my mental health towards the end of my my career in the public health system was the on-call work that we do. So when you're on call, you are on for 24 hours and you can be rung at any time. You may even have to come back to the hospital during that 24-hour period. So you're pretty much on standby for that period of time. And typically, um, any given specialty has a unit of several registrars that run the specialty unit. But for me, I was in a a unit which only had two registrars and the workload was very unfairly distributed. Um, I did 10 24-hour on-call shifts a fortnight and my colleague just did four. So there was a huge burden on me and when you're on standby all the time, even if you don't get called in, there's just no way you can relax because you have to be prepared to answer phone calls, give advice and come into the hospital when it's necessary. So that was what what my life was like. And sometimes I would be stuck at the hospital for up to 20 hours a day and it it does get to you. And I think the thing that is very difficult that some people may not appreciate is being called in the middle of the night, having disrupted sleep is very difficult um, the next day for for anyone to function. Studies have shown that disrupted sleep um, affects your function a lot more than a short duration of sleep. So having that kind of potentially every single night getting called and having your sleep broken really does affect the brain in, in a detrimental way. Absolutely. I mean, I just can't even imagine what that would be like, but I think it's very concerning as a potential patient coming into a hospital that the people that are treating you, they're well-trained, but, you know, to be thinking that, you know, I mean, I just can't even understand how someone could even function well Uh, with the little sleep that you get, as you say, even let alone uh, disrupted sleep. I mean, I don't even know how you could be thinking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
we, we can compare it to alcohol. You know, you don't want a, a drunk surgeon operating on you. And we know that sleep deprivation affects the brain, you know, just as much as alcohol does. I mean, tiredness or fatigue is one of the biggest killers on our roads. And so it is very dangerous. It's just something that doesn't seem to, um, yeah, I feel like the hospitals don't seem to care as much about that as, as other things. And it, it really is a serious problem when, when doctors are, are sleep deprived because it can potentially lead to mistakes. And when we're talking about people's health, it can be fatal. When we were talking, you said that um, you're currently lecturing at the Uni of uh, New South Wales, teaching anatomy. And that yes, um, so if we, we're moving the conversation into talking about culture, uh, changing the culture in, in hospital. Mm. And you said that you notice younger generations are a lot more inclusive. Can you talk about that? Yeah, definitely. That It's so different now. It was actually really amazing to see. When I, when I returned to, to teach at the uni, um, I noticed that there was a, a queer medical students group. And that's something I never would have imagined when I was a medical student. Um, a very close friend of mine is gay and he felt like he couldn't come out while he was at uni. He was in the closet for the longest time, even though we both knew that he was gay. Um, so it was, it's a very, it can be a very judgmental place. And so for me to see that was, it was so heartening knowing that things are slowly changing. The medical students now are a lot more inclusive. And I do feel like that's promising for the future because they will be the ones who will form the next generation of um, the medical workforce. Mm, yeah, so it'll happen, the change will happen slowly. Um, now let's come back to your own health. So let's just go back to, uh, you know, coming out of that after how many years and I mean, how long did it get, what, ha what happened to you when you actually decided to quit? Let's just share that aspect of the, of your life and the book. Yeah. Um, it was very important for me to talk about mental health because there's still so much stigma attached to it, not just in the medical profession, but I think society at large as well. Um, and I think the more people talk about it, the better, especially because it's so common. It's incredibly common for, for people to experience um, yeah, mental illnesses. And so the, the amount of overwork I experienced really led me to quite a dark place. I was both physically and emotionally exhausted and I actually became clinically depressed. So just a week after I quit my job, I was diagnosed with, with depression and it, it has taken a really long time to recover. Mm. Um, there is a huge overlap between burnout and depression. Most people who burn out um, also kind of fulfill the criteria for depression as well. Mm. And so, so a lot of people do experience this from, from their workplace experiences. And for me, you know, recovery is never linear. There's always ups and downs. And I, I got worse before I got better. And I ended up in hospital for six weeks. And my main symptom was insomnia. I just could not sleep. And it's, it's no surprise, really. My, my brain was obviously quite hypervigilant from all the encore that I'd done. So it, I, I struggled to sleep. Um, I was on all sorts of medications, but it took 18 months for me to actually sleep properly again. So it's something that I, it was important for me to talk about because sometimes we talk about burnout and that term can be used quite casually, but for some people it can take 
years to to recover. And so it's just so important to protect people from from burning out. So what are the other things that you did to help you get back on track during that 18 months? I mean, you tried a few different, I mean, you went to yoga and stuff, didn't you as well? Yeah, I did. I tried a whole bunch of things. I mean, you know, as much as I believe in Western medicine, I mean, that's the paradigm I, I trained in. I do also believe that there's many holistic ways to heal yourself. And in, in the hospital, it's not just medications. They do all sorts of other therapies as well. And I personally found art therapy very helpful. Um, mm. There's something, yeah, it's a very mindful experience and it, it was very calming and I'm a creative person. So for me, painting really, um, it, it made me feel better. And we also had music therapy as well. So art therapy and music therapy did help me. Mm-hmm. And yoga was a big thing for me. I, I, I've been doing yoga for quite a long time. I think about 10 years now. And for me, um, I, I never thought I would become a yoga teacher, but I was very interested in, in, in learning more about yoga and deepening my, my understanding. And so I did a yoga teacher training course. And through that course, I learned a lot more about yoga. It's not just about the poses. It's so mm. much more than that. It's all, that's only one small part of yoga, which, which I hadn't appreciated in the past. But I think what really helped me the most with my recovery was learning about yoga philosophy. It's, um, I, I'm, I'm not a religious person, but yoga philosophy is based on Hinduism. And there's a lot of universal truths that I, I think a lot of people will, will connect to with yoga philosophy. And one aspect of it is um, there's a Sanskrit word called aparigraha, which means disidentification. And that's something that helped me a lot because when you spend so much of your life working towards something, it becomes part of your identity. And so when I stopped working, it, it, I went through somewhat of a grief reaction because I, I lost everything that I'd been working towards and so much of my identity was tied to what I was doing. And so for me to detach from that was very difficult. And so reading these yoga philosophy texts um, really helped me to come to terms with what had happened and to, to be okay with existing without all of that external stuff. You know, we, you know things like our jobs, that, that's just what you do. It's not who you are. So for me to be able to find comfort in that, um, I think was a very important part of my recovery. And I think what we need to just tell our listeners as well is just how much you did actually love being a surgeon. We're coming to the end of the interview now, so I just um, what would you what would you sort of parting comments would you would you like to say to people about this experience that you've had? Yeah. And how how old are you now? Thirty or something? I am thirty three now. Great, yes. So you've got to you know yeah. early young. There's lots of things you can do. Yeah. So where where are you up to and feeling about life generally now? I guess. I feel so much better about life. I mean, I possibly could have left earlier, but if I had left earlier, I wouldn't have the clinical experience that I'd gained over those years. So I try not to regret what's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I am still working part-time in surgery, but in the private sector, which is, which is very different, mm-hmm. very different environment to the public hospital system. But I, I feel happy that I'm still able to utilize the skills that I gained over the years. And, and like you mentioned, I, I did love my job. Um, until I had that kind of horror term at the end that broke me down. The the art of surgery itself is is really amazing. The, the technical skills that I gained through that, um, I learned a lot. And 
And so I, I don't want to discourage anyone interested in medicine from, from going, going ahead. If it's your dream and if you're interested in it, then you absolutely should do it. But I think my job is not to discourage people, but just to increase awareness of what it's like. And so mm. to prepare people for the potential biases that they may come up against. But I never want to say to anyone that they shouldn't pursue what they want to do, but just to be aware that there are, there are issues in place. But things are getting better, I feel. And so if we can all be part of that collective change, I think that it will be, it will be better in the future. Good on you. God, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, just almost thank got goosebumps, honestly, talking with you. Uh, <laughs> um, fantastic. And uh, the book, the name of the book again is Emotional Female and it's out now nationally through bookstores and everything, isn't it? People can get it pretty Yeah, much. it is. Yep, just launched last week. So it's now available. Yep, and it's a great cover. It stands out pink, yellow and red. I've got it right next to me here. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much again for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Kate.